0: Welcome to another episode of In Dark Places, broadcast from a secret location, hidden somewhere in the Appalachian Mountains. I'm your announcer, Mr. Haunted. If you want to be on the show and tell your true story, send us an email to IndarkPlacespod at hotmail.com. Stay tuned for another episode, where we'll be talking about Mothman and the Men in Black, with your hosts, Junebug and Tracy.
1: Thank you, Jimmy. This is In Dark Places, a family company. As many of you may know, I was an honorary Man in Black at the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant from about 2012 up until 2019. The Men in Black are probably best known as those creepy dudes that show up after a UFO sighting and start questioning and hassling witnesses. They will steal their photographs and try to uh, discredit them in any way they can. And in some cases, people have even lost their jobs. The Men in Black try to give the illusion that they are some sort of government-funded entity, but no one really knows where they come from. They're very mysterious people. We'll get to all those cool details about the Men in Black in
0: just a little while. But first, here's a few items in the news. You're listening to In Dark Places. I'm your news correspondent, Mr. Haunted. We have a story out of Canada. Two aircraft pilots reported seeing a bright green UFO over Canada on July 30th of this year. Pilots of two separate aircrafts, one military and one commercial, reported seeing a mysterious green UFO vanish into the clouds over the Gulf of St. Lawrence on the Atlantic coast of Canada. According to the report... Posted August 11th to the Canadian government's Aviation Incident Database, both flights witnessed a bright green flying object that flew into a cloud and then disappeared. The object did not impact the operations of either flight, the report noted. Trio of witnesses report security
1: response to winged humanoid sighting at O'Hare International Airport. August 9th, 2021. Manuel Navarte of UFO Clearinghouse recently published an account from three witnesses who claimed to have seen security detachment respond to a winged humanoid sighting at the United Cargo Facility at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport. The sighting reportedly took place on Thursday, July 22nd at approximately 10.30 p.m. Navarte received an initial report as an email submission. I was walking to my car with two of my friends after getting off work we were talking about the day and how it felt good to get off and head home as we approached the car i saw something moving across the street but on the other side of the fence it was dark but you could easily see it as the entire area was lit up and there was a plane that had been brought up near the fence for unloading and loading And there was a lot of activity around the plane As we walked, I pointed it out to my friends, and they also saw the same thing about the same time a white SUV came driving up with its emergency flashing lights on and came to a halt on the road on the other side of the fence. Two men jumped out and shone some flashlights on this person, prompting the person to turn around and stare at them. It looked to be about six to seven feet tall and was a very dark shade of gray, almost black had what looked like two large, glowing red eyes. But that could have been from the flashlights being shined in this direction. About ten seconds after the first vehicle arrived, another came up on the same side of the fence as this person and illuminated the person with its headlights. I remember my friend saying, Lord have mercy, as we watched the scene unfold in front of us. It was about this time, that the person opened up what looked like to be a pair of giant bat wings and flew up into the air. As it flew up and over the people that were now gathered around it, it let out a loud screech. It sounded a lot like train brakes or brakes from a large truck. It flew around in a large circle twice, screeching, and then flew out over the fence and toward the runways and the terminals in the distance. As we watched, a white pickup truck with a TSA emblem came toward us with its emergency lights on and told us and the others who had been gathered in the parking lot to clear out and get in our cars and leave the area immediately. We did as we were told, and as we drove out of the parking lot, we saw another three marked vehicles and just as many unmarked vehicles pull into the street and the parking lot. All with their lights on. I took my friends home and we talked extensively about it and one of my friends who worked the later shift at Union told me that the airport security and TSA were in the area and asking people who stepped outside to please go back in for their safety and were out there for at least an hour to hour and a half. I did some research and came across a podcast where you had been the guest and got your information. The investigator said that he was later able to speak with all three witnesses over the telephone. All three witnesses are in their mid-thirties and they work at United Cargo Sorting Facility and have been there for a number of years, Varte said. All three witnesses were interviewed separately, and all three basically tell the same story as seen from three different points of view. All three... Tell of the entity being seen by the initial witness, who then told the other friends to look at that over there. What stuck out as odd to them was the fact that the entity was so close to the fence and was clad in all black, in contrast to the high-visibility attire worn by ground personnel. One of the witnesses said that she initially was worried that it was a person who had hopped the fence and was going to approach the nearby plane. The witness told me that there were multiple ground personnel working in the area and that one of the control towers was about 100 yards away, which probably prompted the immediate response by airport security and the TSA. When asked to describe the entity, all three gave pretty close descriptions as of a solid black entity about 6 to 7 feet tall in height. When it turned to face the security personnel, It was described as having glowing red eyes, but the witnesses could not agree on if the eyes were self-illuminating or if they were simply reflecting the light of the security personnel's flashlights. All three witnesses did describe that the entity did have a large set of bat-like membranous wings that were approximately 10 to 12 feet in width, and that it did flap them to get into the air. All three described the noises that the entity made as sounding like train brakes or truck brakes, and all three described the sound as very loud. The entity did circle the area at least twice, which is something that until now has not been described by prior witnesses. The entity then flew off to the north and toward the active runways. All three witnesses did describe the response by the airport security and TSA as aggressive and swift. They described that they were asked to leave the area immediately, and in no uncertain terms. This is also unprecedented compared to prior sightings, since the response by airport security to those sightings was not as swift and aggressive as was this one. Navarte noted that this sighting is only a few hundred yards from the now infamous Rest Haven Cemetery and the FedEx cargo facility, where a number of anomalous sightings have been reported and is next door to the facility where a supposed gray alien was sighted about two years ago. The area where this latest sighting occurred has accounted for a large number of sightings that have been reported. It is my opinion that this warrants further investigation by the UFO Clearinghouse Investigations Team, and all information can be passed on to the Phantoms and Monsters Fortean Research Team for possible follow-up investigation back to In Dark Places. There's an old oriental legend that dates back thousands of years dealing with the king of the world. It's um, supposedly a race of people that live underground in outer Mongolia. And the king of the world sends the men in black up to the surface of the world and gives them instructions to uh, wreak all sorts of havoc. Oftentimes the men in black are reported to have olive colored skin. They kind of look Oriental in their appearance. They tend to not have eyebrows or facial hair and hair at all for that matter They'll wear wigs and uh, they don't really have a uh, much of a mouth They've uh, been said to have just a little slit for a mouth and they'll put uh, Lipstick around that little slit to give the appearance that they have a more human-like mouth In 1948 there were reports of an olive skin colored man boarding a flying saucer And the Air Force even released a statement saying that there is no proof that flying saucers are being flown by Spaniards. These guys will turn up at UFO sightings, most commonly. But I've heard reports of them showing up at Bigfoot sighting locations. And in 1966, they were all over Point Pleasant looking for UFO and Mothman witnesses.
2: All right, it might be encounters in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, for those of you who... Um have been under a rock for the past 60 years don't know about the mothman and the MIB and all that down there in point pleasant um I'll give you a little background on these guys here um this report or this story um comes from the mothmanfandom.com um it says unknown persons were reported to be uh to frequent the small town of point pleasant west virginia usually dressed from head to toe in black suits, white shirts, black ties, and black shoes, which all appearances to be perfect in appearance, but yet completely out of style for the time of 1966 and 67. They are said to have asked people questions about the Mothman and told them not to speak about it. Does that sound familiar? Every UFO encounter in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Not only did they visit reporter Mary Heyer, And questioned her about the creature, Uh, but one of them said to have also threatened Mothman witness such as Connie Carpenter. A friend of uh, Mary named Dottie Campbell spoke on the subject of the MIB in interviews. She said that um, she and Mary were very frightened by them and that Hire had mentioned to her that these strange men never blinked their eyes. Mothman witness Linda Scarberry said in an interview, the MIB wore black suits, black hats, and sunglasses. They drove black cars, usually Cadillacs, she thought. Uh, they looked like human beings, but their skin was somewhat transparent. You could see veins in her hands very clearly. Their fingers were long and normally per, or thinner than a normal person's. Um, as well, she said, uh, her daddy shook the hands with him, and he said they were Awkward in shaking hands, seemed not know what to do or how to shake hands. She said one of the cars would follow us around. There were three men in the car. The MIB went so far as to follow us through a drive through of a restaurant. Um, said they got afraid and turned around and just looked at them in the mirror. Um, a man and a woman carrying a camera visited Mothman witnesses, Steve and Mary Mallette. Um, Wanted to take pictures of them, and the mallets took down the license plates of the Volkswagen, but the police said the number was non existent these uh, supposed m i b guys men in black um I don't think they're the kind that you see in the movie um these guys mean business and and you know you hear you don't hear as many reports today like you did back then. I, because I think that the it's not as prevalent to say um, they, they're using different tactics now versus coming to you and scaring you to death and telling you not to say something. They'll, they'll say, well, them people are crazy. That's swamp gas. That was a weather balloon. That's, that's dummies falling from the sky.
1: Yeah, they've changed it up. You don't hear a lot of them getting threatened and stuff like that nowadays.
2: No, I don't believe I've heard any reports of any men in black in a while, a good while.
1: The most recent one I can think of was one on October 14th, 2008, in a hotel in Niagara Falls. There were these two creepy men in black guys, kept wanting to talk to one of the employees there, and he was off that day or something. So he kept coming back and and they never did get to talk to the guy they were looking for. But the next day, the other guy working in the security room was telling the first guy that those guys were looking for him. And he played the security tape back and he actually had video footage of these two men in black.
2: Well, the only thing that really stands out to me in that little bit of report that I read is they said that the attire, you know, the black suit, the white shirt, the black ties and shirts and pants and, He said that wasn't normal for that attire of 66 and 67. I kind of disagree with that a little bit. Um, I've seen a lot of pictures of, you know, that era. And a lot of people are wearing suits and particularly dark suits, especially in, you know, I don't want to say backwoods, West Virginia, but at that time, Point Pleasant was, I mean, and and it's still a sleepy little town, but especially back then, I mean, that was, you know, the normal dress attire, I would think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Seems like, unless they would mean like, uh, I I don't even know. Like maybe with like the hillbilly attire, like people would be wearing bibbed overalls and stuff like right.
2: that. Could be. So could maybe be.
1: that's maybe that's what they meant. They didn't really say that, but uh that's uh, that's why I got out of it. Maybe they thought like that, that. The they didn't dress like the normal hillbillies or something. Maybe could be. Could very well be. <laughs> there was. Uh, woman that used to work at the store where i work at uh, she quit four or five years ago but uh, she had the weirdest skin ever it's talking about like the transparent skin on the men in black and uh, that woman had some weird skin she was real pale complected anyway and uh like if you would talk to her you can swear you could see her veins and stuff she was just was
2: she, was she dressed in black <laughs> no wouldn't that be a wib <laughs> No, she uh, didn't wear the normal clothes and stuff, but uh, she she had
1: a weird look about her. Her skin was just off. Was
2: Mary Hire, was she the lady who was the? Uh, yeah, she was the newspaper reporter. Okay. Well, yeah, five, five, well, here it is. Um, it says uh, one night, January 1967, reporter Mary Hire was working late at her office opposite of the county courthouse and was in, uh, when an unknown man walked in the door. He was described as very short, about four and a half feet tall, and had strange, dark, deep-set eyes, covered by glasses with thick lenses. He was wearing odd shoes with very thick soles, which probably added an inch or two to his height. He had long black hair, cut squarely like a bowl cut, and spoke in a peculiar, low-halted voice. Uh, goes on to say the man asked for directions to Welsh, West Virginia, and kept getting closer and closer as they talked. His eyes remained fixed on her as he stared almost hypnotically. Mary was alarmed by this person, so she bought, brought the newspaper circulation manager to her office, and they spoke to this person together. She said at that point in the discussion, she answered the telephone and noticed a man pick up a ballpoint pen for her desk from her desk. He looked at it in amazement as thought that he had never seen it before. Then he grabbed the pen, laughed loudly, and ran out of the building.
1: Marcella Bennett's MIB encounter. In early December 1966, Mothman witnessed Marcella Bennett and her small daughter, Tina, were driving just outside of Point Pleasant when a red Ford Galaxy began following her. The driver was appeared to be wearing a bushy wig. She slowed down for the vehicle to pass, but instead it tried to force her off the road. She sped up, but the Ford then raced around her and parked sideways on the narrow dirt road, blocking her path. Marcella warned her daughter to hold on as she hit the gas pedal to the floor. The stranger in the red Ford pulled away hastily and allowed her to pass. She had never seen the man before and never saw him again.
2: Mary Hyatt had another run-in with him on May 5th, 1967. Um, She saw the same odd man who had visited her office in January on the streets of Point Pleasant. This time he was wearing a khaki-collared uniform, but still had on the thick-soled shoes. He appeared alarmed when he saw her approaching. He ran towards a large black car that suddenly came driving around the corner, climbed in, and the vehicle took off. Uh, three days later, on May eighth, nineteen sixty seven, at eleven thirty p.m., Mary Hire was arriving home from a civic meeting. Just as she was on her porch, opening her door, a black car stopped just outside of her house, and a man got out, snapped a picture with a brightly flash with a blindingly bright flash, and drove off while she was briefly disoriented. So I guess that's where that comes in the movie where they said stare here at this light, blah blah blah, <laughs> flashes <laughs> and everybody forgets everything.
1: Connie Carpenter's MIB Encounter At 8.15 on February 22, 1967, Mothman witness Connie Carpenter was walking to school when a black 1949 Buick pulled up alongside her. The driver opened his door and asked her for directions. He seemed to be a clean-cut young man of about 25 or so, with thick, neatly combed black hair and a deep suntan. When Connie got closer to the vehicle, the stranger suddenly ordered her to get in and grabbed her by the arm, trying to pull her into his car. She managed to get away and the sleeve of her blouse was ripped in the process. She ran back to her house and locked herself in. The Next day, a threatening note was slipped under her door reading, be careful girl. I can get you yet.
2: Anybody who's, who, who's been to the Mothman festival, or knows anything about you know the Point Pleasant incident with these men in black and the Mothman and different things. Um you know this this is kind of a, a common theme with things like this in the 60s. Um there's many reports of men in black showing up after UFO sightings. Um and they basically are saying the same thing. You know, they ask a bunch of questions. They know more about you than you know about you. And then after it's all over, you know, they're you're threatened with everything under the sun and that you never talked to them. You never saw what you saw and things of that nature. And like I said, you don't hear as many reports of these guys now, um, I think, because one, the general public, is kind of getting, getting onto them, especially with the movie that come out Um, and kind of, that's how it works. They'll make a spoof of something like that. That's possibly true. That's really happening. And then that kind of goes underground and they figure out another way to kind of clandestinely come at you.
1: I've wondered on the, the blues brothers movies. I seem to remember uh seeing Dan Aykroyd talk about that. He said that he based those characters off the Men in Black and then he's like totally into UFOs and stuff too. He even had a Men in Black encounter.
2: Oh, wow. I didn't uh, know that.
1: In January 2002, Dan Aykroyd sold a series to the Sci-Fi Channel called Out There, which would break serious ground revolving around topics like UFOs, crop circles, and alien abductions. On a break during interviews for the upcoming show, he stepped outside and saw a black Ford sedan with a man in black standing outside it. He looked away for a brief moment and when he looked back, the car was gone. Two hours after the car disappeared, Dan was given bad news from the producers. He said, We were told not to continue taping, that the show was canceled, and none of them would air. He was getting ready to be on Saturday Night Live the following weekend and Britney Spears was going to be the musical guest. So while he was working on his Out There show, he got a phone call from Britney Spears, so he went outside to talk to her, and that's when he saw The Man in Black.
2: Wow. Yeah, I'd never heard that before.
1: There's a, a third Mary Hire Man in Black there
2: uh see so she had another run-in on uh december 22nd uh, yeah 22nd uh, 1967 um on that afternoon during a christmas week and after a local after the local silver bridge disaster which uh if you don't know about that that's that's kind of what brought the the mothman kind of the forefront with john keel um was the silver bridge that collapsed and a lot of people believe that he, he was either there to warn the people or he had something to do with it or. But either way, it was a bridge that spanned from uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia over to Gallipolis, Ohio, and it went across the uh, Ohio River and it collapsed just a few days before Christmas. And it was had several. I can't remember. I want to say like 40 or 50 people on the bridge because um, there was a lot of traffic Um uh, but there were several of them that died. But uh, either way, after that, uh, two men in black or two men walked into Mary's office. Um, both were short and uh, wore black overcoats and had dark complexions and eastern fig features. They were not interested in the bridge disaster, but wanted to know about the UFO reports in the area. Higher handed them a large file folder of related press clippings, but they were not very interested in them. They asked her what she would do if someone ordered her to stop writing about UFOs. She basically said that she'd continue anyway. The two men glanced at each other. Mary went back to her work, and when she looked up again, they were gone. Later that same afternoon, December 22, 1967, another strange man walked into Hire's office. The man introduced himself as Jack Brown. He was five foot seven, with black, piercing eyes, unruly black hair, and long fingers. His complexion was even darker than that of the two previous visitors, and he was—he as well had middle Eastern features. He wore an ill-fitting, cheap black suit with an oddly knotted tie. He claimed to be a UFO researcher, and once again asked Hire what she would do if someone asked—if someone asked her to stop writing her articles. Um, Mary asked if, uh, he was with the two men that she had talked to earlier. And he said he wasn't, uh, the man stammered as he asked about author John Keel and Mary hire, uh, witnessed UFOs in the area. He wanted to know where John Keel was, um, and wanted Mary to take him to the siding location. Mary told him that she couldn't just escort him around and that she was going home for the night. Uh, she dismissed him from the office and told him that he had 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 to have a look around himself.
0: Oh, Johnny, I apologize. I forgot you were there. You may go now.
2: The strange man then visited the home of several witnesses in the area, including Scarberry and Mollett's, as well as Connie Carpenter. He made all of them very uneasy and uncomfortable. His piercing black eyes started stared hypnotically. He was now claiming to be a friend of Mary Heyer. He brought a tape recorder yet seemed completely unfamiliar on how to thread or operate it. He didn't seem at all interested in the mothman or UFO reports. He instead asked mostly questions about Mary Hire and John keel early in the evening. He said that he didn't know Keel personally, but later on claimed that he were good, He was good friends. While well, said that was the reporter from Cambridge, Ohio, but then in, inadvertently admitted that he didn't know where Columbus, Ohio was, even though the two towns are just a few miles apart. Jack Brown eventually drove off into the night, reportedly never heard from again.
1: John Keel versus MIB. Keel would chase the men in black in an attempt to confront them. He had the local police in many towns looking for them. When he was in West Virginia and Ohio, people would call his hotel and tell them that the MIB were there, he'd race over to the location, but they would be gone by the time he arrived. John Keel said that the MIB were mainly reported to drive black Cadillacs until he started doing articles about the MIB driving these cars, at which point they were said to have switched to Volkswagens. The cars they would drive often had license plates that had never been issued to anyone. A mysterious blonde woman in her 30s with a southern accent visited people in West Virginia and Ohio whom Keel had interviewed. She even visited those he had not mentioned in print. She introduced herself claiming to be John Keel's secretary, thus winning instant admission. The clipboard she carried held a complicated form filled with personal questions about the witnesses' health, income, and type of cars they owned as well as their general family background and some fairly sophisticated questions about their UFO sightings. John Keel didn't learn about this woman until months later when one of his friends in Ohio wrote to him and happened to mention her. One afternoon in the spring of 1967, John Keel and a female friend were walking along 42nd and 3rd Avenue, New York when a stranger with a pointed face deliberately took a photo of them and turned and ran away. The man was wearing a poorly fitting sports jacket and slacks. There's, I mean,
2: there was some strange going on. So. Yeah,
1: it was, uh, it was weird. They said that like in Point Pleasant during 1966 and 67, that's you'd see a bunch of just out of towners, uh, in black, walking around in town and, Someone just kind of standing there, and staring at people, taking pictures of them. Just crazy stuff.
2: That is crazy. That is crazy.
1: We could do a whole show just on Woodrow Derenberger, because he had pretty much every type of encounter that we've talked about during the month of Mothman, except for maybe the Mothman himself. I don't think he ever saw him. Here's what John Keel had to say about Woodrow Derenberger in the Mothman Prophecies book. Woodrow Dernberger is a tall husky man with close-cropped sandy hair, twinkling blue-gray eyes, and an honest open face. In 1966, he was in his early 50s, but looked considerably younger. His life had been normal to the point of being mundane. A long succession of modest jobs, hard times, constant movement from one rented house to another, pursuing no particular ambition, surviving feeding and clothing his attractive young wife and two children. Now he was working as a salesman for an appliance company and living in a simple two-story farmhouse in Mineral Wells, West Virginia. It was a good time in his life. At 7 p.m. on November 2, 1966, he was heading home in his panel truck after a long, hard day on the road. The weather was sour, chill, and rainy. As he drove up a long hill outside of Parkersburg on Interstate 77, a sudden crash sounded in the back of his truck. He snapped on his interior lights and looked back. A sewing machine had fallen off the top of a stereo, but there didn't seem to be any real damage. A car swept up behind him and passed him. Another vehicle seemed to be following it. He eased his foot on the accelerator. He had been speeding slightly and thought it might be a police car. The vehicle, a black blob in the dark, Drew alongside him, cut in front of him, and slowed. Woodrow Derenberger gaped in amazement at the thing. It wasn't an automobile, but was shaped like an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney, flaring at both ends, narrowing down to a small neck and then enlarging a great bulge in the center. It was a charcoal gray. He slammed on his brakes as the object turned crossways, blocking the road. Stopping only eight to ten feet from it, a door slid open on the side of the thing, and a man stepped out. I didn't hear an audible voice, Woody said later. I just had a feeling, like I knew what this man was thinking. He wanted me to roll down my window. The stranger was about five feet ten inches tall, with long, dark hair, combed straight back. His skin was heavily tanned, grinning broadly, his arms crossed, and his hands tucked under his armpits. He walked to the panel truck. He was wearing a dark top hat. Underneath it, Woody could see some kind of garment made of glistening greenish material, almost metallic in appearance. Don't be afraid, the grinning man did not speak aloud. Woody sensed the words. We mean you no harm. I come from a country much less powerful than yours. He asked for Woody's name, and Woody told him, My name is Cold. I sleep, breathe, and... Bleed, even as you do. Mr. Cold nodded toward the lights of Parkersburg in the distance and asked what kind of place it was. Woody tried to explain that it was a center for business and homes, a city. In his world, Cold explained such things were called gatherings. While this telepathic conversation was taking place, the chimney-shaped object ascended and hovered some 40 to 50 feet above the road. Other cars came along the road, and passed them. Cold told Woody to report the encounter to the authorities, promising to come forward at a later date to confirm it. After a few minutes of aimless generalities, Cold announced he would meet Woody again soon. The object descended, the door opened, Cold entered it, and it rose quickly and silently into the night. When he got home, Darenberger was in a very distraught state. His wife urged him to call the Parkersburg police. They seemed to accept his story without question and asked if he needed a doctor. The next day he was questioned at length by the city and state police. The story appeared in the local press and on the radio and television. People who had driven that same route the night before came forward to confirm that they had seen a man speaking to the driver of a panel truck stopped in the highway. Mrs. Frank Huggins and her two children had reportedly stopped their own car and watched the object soar low over the highway minutes after Woody watched it depart. Another young man said the object had frightened him out of his wits when it hovered over his car and flashed a powerful blinding light on him. Woodrow Derenberger became a super celebrity. Crowds of people gathered at his farm every night, hoping to glimpse a spaceship. His phone rang day and night. He switched to an unlisted number, but within a short time, the calls began again. Crank calls, threatening him if he didn't shut up. Calls that consisted of nothing except eerie electronic sounds and code like beeps. Mr. Cole kept his promise. He returned. So, Woodrow Derenberger's story just kept getting more bizarre as time went on he ended up losing his job and had visits from the men in black they kept threatening him he would see them hanging around his house and stuff and there for the longest time he would tell his story to anyone who would ask and he always stayed true to the details indra cold supposedly even took him to his home planet a few times he wrote about all his experiences with indra cold in his book called visitors from lanulus Finally, after he got harassed for all those years and stuff, he finally just got to the point where he didn't want to talk about his story anymore. He finally ended up moving to a different town. He just lived a quiet life in his twilight years, and he died in 1990. Injury cold is said to have died on September 18th, 2018. His two sons visited Woodrow Derenberger's daughter and gave her the bad news. Andrew Cole crashed his UFO thing after being in pursuit of some evil aliens.
2: So no Mothman Festival this year again. <laughs> Which I hate yeah, that because I was actually going to try to go on the Saturday because I mean I've never been, but I definitely wanted to go.
1: Yeah, we kind of figured that was going to happen anyway.
2: We'd yeah, cancel yeah, everything. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> But well, to cancel culture, so <laughs> I don't want to cancel everything. And
1: that's about all the creepy men and black stories we have for you this week. Join us again next week on the month of Mothman when we'll be talking about the UFOs associated with the Mothman back in 1966 and 1967 in Point Pleasant. There were tons of UFO reports, and John Keel wrote about several of them in the Mothman prophecies thanks for listening to the show we really appreciate you god bless you and we'll see you next week